Hi, Pastor John here. Thanks for joining our broadcast. Today we're in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-21. through 21. It's all about love, a subject we like to hear about. But if we've learned anything from experience, we know that love is not always easy. Let's listen in as we walk through this beautiful but challenging passage in a sermon called, Love Ain't Easy. That's what is known as a uh, psalm of ascension. And uh, the Jews would, would uh, recite this on their way. And you, if you go back and go take a look through Psalm 118 uh, later on this afternoon, you'll see they're headed to the temple. Uh, and the first portion of that is about their anticipation of being in the temple. Then they get to the temple, and then they enter in through the gates, and which only the righteous will enter through. Uh, and then they are in the presence of the Lord. They begin extolling him. So uh, they would do that on their way up to Jerusalem. And up to Jerusalem is always up because Jerusalem sits at a plateau that's about 4,000 feet. Um, so, and they would, do it, they would do this call and response thing. And it was all in preparation for being in the presence of the Lord. So. I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses... 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In, the midst, in, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, Because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Ran into somebody in town this week, and uh, they came over and said, hey, I've been listening to your new series. I always say thank you so much. He goes, when are you going to stop talking about love and get on to something else? And I said, you might not want to tune in this weekend. <laughs> so, I had to tell you something. When, when, when I was a young man, 
Uh, just a few years ago, Actually, you heard it. <laughs> I was in love. I was 17 years old. I went to my dad and I said, I'm in love, dad. And, you know, my dad never really engaged in deep conversation with me, but there were a few times when he did, and this was one of them. He said, he said what do you know about love? Oh, he said, dad, I, I know everything about it. I've been in love several times. <laughs> I, said, I, I hear songs about love, and they move my heart. I read poems. I read books. I watch movies. I watch plays. I said, I've learned a lot about love. You know, if it was today, I would say, I've got an app that, that tells me when I'm in love. I can go to a website and find out all about love. I said, Dad, it's just, it's, it's easy. My dad looked at me, and he kind of shook his head, and he said, love ain't easy, John. Love ain't easy. Is it? Is love easy? Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't we have these great feelings all the time? You know, that's kind of what we're talking about here. There, there are different types of love. We need to recognize it. You have love of young man for, for a young woman. That's what I was going through at the time. I don't even remember her name. <laughs> yeah, love of a young man for his future bride. We have love of our parents, of brothers and sisters, of extended family, and our children. We have love, we feel love for close friends, people that are important in our lives. But the love we see in Scripture is godly love. And it's not, like, it's not like any other love that we might be familiar with. We have a hard time processing God's love. We try to reason it out. We try to figure out what it's really like. And part of that, we have a hard time of doing that because, because we're not God. Yes, we have him inside us, but we're not God. But still we try. We try to relate to God and ascribe to him our idea of what love is. And, and, and we've been doing it all the way through First John so far. Think, well, yeah, okay, that's God loves the way we do. So we try to relate to him as if he's one of us. Don't we do that? We're just saying he's a friend of mine. I mean, that, that might mean something different to all of us sitting here, but I, I think when we hear that God is our friend, it's more than we're just pals. Maybe not. Well, that whole process is called anthropomorphizing God. It's a $10 word. And it means giving him human qualities, human attributes, defining God's nature the way we define our nature. In other words, making God out to be like it. And when it comes to love, trying to figure out whether or not God loves the way we do. Except, except God's nothing like us, particularly in the area of love. So why is it so hard for us to process? Why do we go through this? And I'm going to tell you, it's because we equate love with affection, don't we? We see love existing in a two-way relationship. There's give and take in it. And now there's nothing wrong with that. But is that what God loves? Is that how he loves? 
And for us, love starts with some level of mutual attraction. We see qualities that we like. We're drawn to them. There's some sort of commonality there. And the relationship grows from that start. But godly love, true godly love, is totally different. Here's a formal definition of love. Now, I've shared this with you several times, but I want you to think about it. I want to put it up on the screen here. It is love that originates from the lover with no regard for the value and the attributes of the beloved. Did you hear that? Love that flows from the lover with no regard for the value of the at- or the attributes of the beloved. Now, some would call this unconditional love, which we kind of understand, kind of. But if you stop and think about this, un- unconditional love isn't pity like the type of love you would have for a puppy who's wounded or an animal you bring into your house. And it's not, it's not some warm, fuzzy feeling in your tummy. It's not this starry-eyed, run-through-the-meadow-in-slow-motion thing that media would try to convince it is. It, it, that's not what godly love is. It's compassionate, but it's not compassion. Now, you're going to have to think on that for a bit. And I'm going to let you. Here's how Paul describes godly love in 1 Corinthians 13. Starting with verse 4. He says, love is patient. Oh, I like that. And kind. Oh, yes, I want to be kind to those that I love. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude doesn't insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. Ouch. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. See, now we're getting into the hard part, aren't we? Believes all things, hopes all things, And endures all things. Love never ends. It goes on about prophecies ending, but love not ending. Knowledge ends, not love. So this, this is the godly love that we're reading about in 1 John. It's God's love for his children, one he wants to teach us. Well, why does he want to teach us that? So that we feel better about ourselves? No, so that we can love others the way he loves us. John speaks of this love very eloquently and very frequently. So when my friend asked me when we were going to move on to anything, I went back and did a little bit of research that I hadn't done on 1 John before. There are a total of 86 verses in 1 John. 26 of them are in today's passage. And love, agape, the Greek word, some form of agape, occurs 52 times in the letter. That's one every 1.65 
verses for those of you that are going to want to do the math. And, and there's another word that, that appears 14 times, once every 6.1 verses, and that's commandment. Wow. You know, when we, when we conduct preaching seminars, we, we, the first thing we tell people that want to learn how to preach is look for patterns. Do you see a pattern here? 56 times? 14 commandments? So what is exactly John trying to tell us? That we should love. Not just that we should love, but that we can love. Not because of anything we've done. Listen to this. We can't love because of things we've done. The reason that we can love is because of what God has done in us. And so still, it's a little difficult to understand all this. It's a, maybe, maybe we understand it on a, on a very high level, but does it sink into our heart? Does it become part of who we are? Does it come flowing from us the way love and truth should? So the title of, of our sermon today is Love Ain't Easy. Somebody's correcting my English right now. And this is part nine of our ongoing series. Uh, what about love? Now, what, what is the name of the series? <laughs> What's love got to do with it? <laughs> you know, and this is actually part one because we're going to do part two uh, when I come back from the conference in California. Uh, so our passage is divided up into two sections, and I've called them loved, Love's Characteristics. And we're going to see what love proves in verses 7 through 11. And in verses 12 through 21, we'll see what love produces. So let's take a look at what love proves. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, now, now that John has told us in the last passage how to test the spirits, so that we can identify bad teaching from good teaching and bad teachers from good teachers. He's going to go back to the results of good teaching. And he's done this in chapter 2 and he's done it in chapter 3. He's doing it again. And one of the results of that, that, that good teaching is love. This love originates in God. And it's in everyone who has been born of God. Now, what, what does this mean? Now, you know, as the Jews would hear this, uh, they would hear God is their father. And the Jew, they'd get it right away. Uh, they assumed that children would eventually bear the imprint of their father and turn out to be something like him. So when you're born of God, God is your father, and you're being conformed to his image, going to be formed into something like him. So people who claim God is their father should be becoming like him, adapting to his character and nature, should be loving the way he loves. Now, that, that should cause us to pause for just a second and do some self-examination, but we want to be careful with self-examination uh, because when we begin that process, we can very easily become harsh with ourselves uh, because we have to understand that the love that we're talking about as we are conformed to God's image, the love that we're talking about comes as a process. We have to learn it. We have to practice it. This is why John established all this in chapter 2. We have to practice it. But since it's not the type of love we're familiar with, it's one that we have to consciously apply 
to those around us. We're going to be thinking about this. We're going to be working at it. It doesn't come naturally. And in many ways, it goes hand-to-hand with sanctification. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But in short, the more we know about God, the more we understand that we participate in our sanctification, and the more we learn how to love the way God loved us. We participate in sharing God's love as well. So we might have a lot to learn about godly living. I know I certainly do. But we should be learning. John says our love for God will be proven by our love for each other. And on the other hand, he says in verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So the lack of love, the unwillingness to express love, is proof someone doesn't really know God at all. This is what false teachers are showing the church, where they're causing all this tension and division and all the confusion that's being spread. It's not love. It's not regard for the people in the church. So John provides the the ultimate contrast between the self-centered, self-serving, love that the false teachers are professing and the kind of love that comes from God. In verse 9 he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. The love of God was manifest. Now that's another big word. If we don't stop and think about it, we're not going to get it. But it means that it became tangible. That we could see it. We could experience it. John says in his gospel that the love took on flesh. And that's what we call the incarnation. It became Jesus. And God sent Jesus. He dispatched him on a mission of mercy and grace. Some people think he's on a mission of condemnation. He's not. Jesus came to prove God's love for his children. Jesus was God's apostle, his messenger of love. Well, where did you get that, John? comes out of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, the author says, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the confession he's talking about is our confession of faith. Jesus is the apostle of God, the apostle of our faith, the apostle of God's love, and he bears that message of love to those who believe in him. He says, when you believe in me, you receive eternal life. Well, that's good. How do I get this? What are the nuts and bolts of of accommodating that into my life, appropriating it into my daily walk. Look at verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love was proven by the death of Christ. He was the propitiation for our sins. We got a lot of $10 words this morning, don't we? It means, all all it means is God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sin. That his sacrifice appeased, satisfied God's wrath. He took the penalty for our sin so that we can no longer suffer under the consequences of it. He took our sin so that 
He took the wrath so that we didn't have to. This is mind-bendingly incredible. I mean, you know, we hear it all the time, but we, we, we just need to soak in this. God loves his children. God loves you and me. If we have confessed our sin, if we've repented, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then God sent his only Son and subjected him to the full fury of God's wrath so that you and I could be with God forever. Do you see how selfless, how sacrificial this godly love is? How it puts the welfare of other people above our own. How the creator of the universe suffered so that those who believe in him wouldn't have to. What do I do with this? How do I even respond to it? Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The proof of God's love in us comes in how we take on the attributes of our Father in heaven and how we express his love in how we love others. Proof is important, isn't it? Some of you have heard this story. Kelly and I were in Turkey in 2016. And, you know, we had been in Greece for a while. And we took this boat ride, went from Chios Island to Chesma, Turkey. 20-minute boat ride. Everything's different there. We went to Ephesus. We had a great day. God moved powerfully in our lives, in the life of our guide, I believe. (laughs) But when we got ready to leave, I couldn't find my passport. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, we're running all over this little island and a gun everywhere. No passport, no passport. I, I have gone into the bathroom and taken all of my clothes off and turned everything inside out. No passport. So we go to the police. I can't find my passport. And they're they're like, oh, really? (laughs) I said, yeah, and we need need to get on the ferry to go back. And, you know, the police were actually, they were fairly nice as they walked me back towards the cells. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my. (laughs) And they're saying, you know, we can get you on the boat, but you're not going to get into Greece on the other side. They're just going to send you back here again. And by the way, we don't know who you are. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the atmosphere in the room changed just a little bit. I had no proof of who I was. I had my wife there. She had her passport. But what did that mean? I had a couple of credit cards. What did that mean? And all of a sudden, they're looking at me a little differently. And, and one of the guys says... Oh, you can go to the consulate and get a passport. It won't take much longer than a week or so. And what do I do in the meantime? You can't go anywhere. And meanwhile, everybody's looking at the cells. And I'm like, Lord, help me. You know, I'm telling Kelly, go back. I'll catch up to you. And she's going, I'm not going to leave you here. This will turn into be a movie. (laughs) 
And all of a sudden, I reached in my pocket, and my passport was there. But I had, up until that moment, I, I believe God moved miraculously in my life. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. I had no proof of who I was. I had nothing to show them who I was. You see, as Christians, we have this indelible, irrevocable passport that we wear in our hearts, and it shows up in our actions, and our actions are proof of God's love living inside of us, proof that we are believers, proof that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And we can't lose that one. Well, that's pretty incredible. What does it mean to me here today? Let's take a look at what this should produce in our lives, starting in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And the fact that God is invisible is another theme that runs through John's writings. We see it in some form in John's gospel at least three times. In John chapter 6, he says, verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, this is Jesus speaking, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. What John is saying is that no one but the Son sees the Father. That has never physically, tangibly seen the Father. And the Kavakis paraphrase for this verse is, since no one sees the Father and he lives in you, they should be able to see the Father in you. The love you express is the proof of his presence. That is the visible, tangible proof of a loving God, and that visible, tangible proof of a loving God, brothers and sisters, is you and me. It's us. So the first thing that love should produce in us is a visible expression of God. Okay, that's great. Where does that come from? How does it get here? Do we have to dredge this up? Do I need to stoke my faith so that I've got enough to be able to walk in this? Do we, do we generate it? How do we participate? How do we work on this? Now, we're called to do that, but the question is, how do we get it? God gives it to us. It's his free gift of grace. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And the spirit is our assurance that God is in us. In John's letter, the spirit is always associated with the truth and he leads us and guides us in discerning the truth and walking in it. And he also leads us and guides us in expressing God's love. The Spirit also assures us of who Christ is, assures us that Christ is in us. And that becomes what we call our testimony. John tells us so in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Our testimony is God's message to the world through us about his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's why we're called messengers. We bear that testimony. And it's been given to us. And we can tell who the true messengers are by verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
Jesus is the flesh and blood son of God. This is what John's trying to get across here. He's not just diverging. He's saying Jesus is the son of God. To the Jews, they would say, okay, the flesh and blood son. He's not some sort of spirit. He's not a concept. He is the incarnate truth of God. That's a swipe at the false teachers. Verse 16, John says, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The truth of the gospel, the message we've been given, the way we share it, all of that reveals the love of God to a world that is in desperate need of good news. And when a believer confesses this, he or she is united to God in a supernatural way. We abide in him. God now abides in us. And the evidence of this union is the indwelling spirit and the fact that we have this message in us. It's an outward expression of God's love. It's not just the indwelling spirit that we've been blessed with. We've been blessed with the capability to show people what that spirit looks like. Verse 17, by this love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is also, and are we, I'm sorry, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, it's the second thing that God produces in us is this assurance. We've talked about this in chapter 2. The assurance of our faith, the confidence that God is working with us, using us as his witnesses for the truth. Now, and here's the third product that love produces in us, Verse 18, there is no fear in love. I like this. But perfect love casts out fear. We quote this all the time. But today we're going to take a look at it in context. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the third thing that love produces in us is that we are protected from fear. We should understand this perfection. It's interesting because John kind of equates our level of fear with our ultimate perfection. Perfect love casts out fear. When God's love is perfected in us, we will no longer fear. Well, most of us, I certainly include myself in that group, have to wait for that day. The day that God's love is perfected in us, and that's going to be when we stand in glory. The good news is that if we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that God already sees us through the lens of Jesus' perfected love. Even though it's not quite perfected in us yet, this is the already and not yet concept we've talked about, the promise of salvation is Christ in us, that it will be perfected in us. Meanwhile, by God's grace, we're called to work on it. That's what the letter's about. This goes back to the idea that John has proposed that believers should be practicing Believers should be working on their love over the course of their sanctification. John's not saying you're not saved if you have fear. I'll tell you, that's the way it's been taught to me, that if you have fear, you're not saved. That's not what John's saying here. It has to be taken in the context of the rest of the letter. What he's saying is that God's love is not yet perfected in you if you have fear. It's almost as if you can measure the progress of your sanctification by how afraid of life you are. 
And none of this, none of this is intended to condemn us as believers. Now we know that's true because Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we should understand that the Spirit in us shows us our fear as an act of grace, not an act of judgment. So if you're sitting there right now going, well, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that, I must be in trouble with God. No, this is an act of grace. What the Spirit is saying is this fear that you have is unfounded because it's not eternal. It is temporary. You're afraid of your circumstances. And God is trying to show you the truth that you don't have to be afraid of your circumstances because your eternal destiny is assured. Do you see how John's bringing it all together here? The Spirit is in you. The Spirit is testified to be within you because he's brought up your fear. Well, that doesn't sound very polite. Yeah, he wants you to be closer to God. He wants you to be a better messenger of the love. And he wants you to put your eyes on eternity, not the situation that you're in. It's a little gift. So all this... All this, the indwelling spirit, the assurance we're talking about, the ever-decreasing presence of fear is an act of grace because, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. That's where it comes from. The gift comes from God. The ultimate product of God's love for us is our love for him. See, I told you this is a different type of love than what we're accustomed to. And if we love him, then consequently we'll love others. Now, of course, John, John wants to keep in mind that there's some bad teaching going along, so he discusses the opposite in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a commandment to love. Talked about this last week. Not a suggestion. It's not not telling us to work up some warm, fuzzy feeling about people we don't like. This takes conscious effort. And it's not based, watch this, it's not based on how we feel about somebody. It's not based on our opinion to them, what their background is, what their color is, what their denomination is, what political party they're in. It's not based on any of that. It's based on God's commandment to love. And it should be a sign to the world that there is a loving God and that they have access to him through Jesus Christ. When Kelly and I got married, you remember that? <laughs> we exchanged rings. You know, and I, I, love, I love that moment in the service. Because, you know, we'll hold up the rings and we'll go, you know, the rings are round because they're eternal in nature. They point towards the eternality of who God is and this relationship. They're made out of precious metal because our relationship is precious. And they are a sign of a mutually exclusive relationship that these people have to each other. That's, that's what the, the chaplain said over us. 
a sign to the world that we belong to each other. We both wear our rings on our right hands to show others that we are betrothed. That she is my bride. Believers should wear God's love like that. It should be a sign to the world that we belong to him and the encouragement that they can as well. So we took a look at love's characteristics, what love proves. God's love is proven in how he sent his son to die for those who weren't worthy of sacrifice. God loved us because he's God. Not because we're lovable. There's something we should bear in mind when when we decide who to love. Do we love the lovable? Jesus says that's easy. Loving the unlovable like God did with us is proof that God is in us. So that's the proof of God's love. What What that love produces in us. God's given us his spirit. It produces three things in us. And and he's given us the spirit to help us with it. It it should produce a visible expression, a tangible presence of God's love in the world. We we receive also the assurance of the Holy Spirit in us. And the more we love, the more we conform to what God is forming us into, the less we fear. None of it comes easy. We've got to work at this. We have to strive to be an expression of God's Godly love, consciously moved towards loving, not just the lovable, but the unlovable. Why should we do that? I want you to think about this for a second. Because God's calling us to do a hard thing. Can we agree on that? Why? Well, you know, it's not just because God said it. But I want to, everyone you know, everyone you've ever met... Everyone you will ever meet, everyone, so whether you not you met them, everyone are created in God's image. Ooh, okay, now we know that, but look at the implications we have there. Everybody in the world is created in God's image. And if we refuse to love them, if we get angry at them, if we reject them, if we feel somehow superior to them, what does that say about our regard for the image maker who gave his only son so that we could literally take up our cross and follow him and love the way he does? My dad told me love ain't easy. That it's hard work. And as I got older, I began to realize it's more than funny feelings and more than sun-drenched meadows. And the type of godly love is the type of love that will last a lifetime. Indeed, it will last eternity. And it takes constant conscious effort. But the rewards are amazing. Jesus came in the flesh. He allowed that flesh to be tortured and mutilated out of his pure and perfect love for us. And he did it not only to save us, brothers and sisters, but to show us the way. And that way is love. Let's pray. 
Father, there's a lot of redundancy here. And we pray by the presence and power of your spirit that we would not be bored by it, Father, but be challenged by it. You start talking about your love at this level this many times, Father. We understand that you've given it to us because it's hard for us to do. Oh, Lord, we're actually unable to do it. And we pray that by your spirit, we would be able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling and love those that are not just lovable, but love the unlovable as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for turning in with us. Next week we have Jesse Fury coming uh, to tell us about the Bonhoeffer House and crew and something else. Yes, yes. If you're comfortable, please stand and come forward so that we can say hi to the folks out there. And you guys can vote on who has the brightest shirt. Maybe they're wearing Hawaiian pajamas. Hawaiian pajamas and drinking from Hawaiian cups. You know, you don't have to be wearing a Hawaiian shirt to come forward. Come Absolutely. on. We're going to say hi to everybody. Tahitian yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Other islands. Yeah. Colorful. Right? Colorful, right. <laughs> okay, here we go. Aloha, we love you. Thanks for joining us. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. If anybody would like to talk to me, I'll be right over here. Mm -hmm. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.